Welcome back to the history of Nazi Germany. I'm Stephen Remy. I'm a professor of history at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. This series supports my course, History 3242, Nazi Germany. This is episode six, German society from 1933 to 1939. There's a lot of material to cover here, so I'm going to divide this episode into two parts. You now know how Hitler and the Nazi party came to power in 1933, destroyed the Republic, and created a dictatorship. And you know how it singled out a minority of German citizens, German Jews, for disenfranchisement and persecution. In part one of this episode, I'll say a few things about the Nazi system of rule and Hitler's pivotal place in it. And then I'll start talking about society in Germany before the Second World War. One of the big questions here is what was it like to live in Nazi Germany if you were not Jewish or otherwise a target of the regime? First, the regime and Hitler's role in it. You know that following the Reichstag fire in February 1933, Hitler established the legal basis for a dictatorship through an emergency decree and the passage of an enabling act. You also know how the left was crushed and how the regime outlawed all other political parties, took control of the media, and coordinated German society. You'll also remember that in June 1934, Hitler eliminated the stormtroopers as a potential threat to his own position. He took yet another major step toward consolidating his power in August 1934, following the death of President Paul von Hindenburg. Hitler merged the office of the Chancellor and the President. He was now truly Germany's dictator. So how did he rule? On the one hand, his work habits were highly irregular, to put it mildly. He often arose very late, and unlike Joseph Stalin, Hitler resisted sitting at a desk for hours on end and did not particularly care to spend a lot of time reading reports. On the other hand, he was capable of devoting a great deal of time and intense effort to preparing his speeches and public performances. Hitler was also obsessed with large-scale construction projects, so he spent a great deal of time sketching and poring over blueprints and scale models of entire new cities he imagined being built or over plans for the 1936 Summer Olympic Games. Now, in Mein Kampf, Hitler defined his approach to rule in what became known as the leader principle. In his words, the leader principle meant, and here I'm quoting Adolf Hitler, authority over every leader downwards and responsibility upwards. The leader principle had four essential components. First and foremost, it involved Hitler the person performing his role as Hitler, the leader. Much of his ability to wield power depended on the creation and maintenance of a cult of personality around him. In Hitler's case, this was known as the leader myth. 
The myth involved Hitler performing as a charismatic leader of genius, a visionary unconstrained by democratic processes or by bourgeois morality or by institutional constraints. And he performed the leader role as a man capable of making bold decisions. Always remember, this was a performance. It was an illusion, although it was a powerful illusion. Second was the absolute loyalty of subordinates. Hitler could tolerate people making mistakes, and it was occasionally possible for trusted subordinates to argue with him and even sometimes change his mind. But disloyalty could never be tolerated. Third was the willingness of subordinates to replicate the leadership principle in their own domains. As long as they were doing something called working toward the leader, which is how one regime official put it in 1936, then they could take initiatives and often have wide latitude to act on their own. This combination made it possible for Hitler to delegate responsibility while always maintaining the option of intervening at decisive moments. Beginning in 1933, Hitler created new agencies and new important-sounding titles that duplicated and bypassed existing bureaucracies with their long-standing institutional structures, written rules, and hierarchies. In the first three years of the dictatorship alone, Hitler created 10 new so-called Supreme Reich authorities, all without abolishing existing ministries. An important exception was the merger of the chancellor's and president's offices in 1934. As a result, administrative boundaries were not defined clearly, and this resulted in what one Nazi-era official called National Socialist Administrative Anarchy. This duplication was extended across the country. During the 1920s, the party divided Germany into districts for the purpose of building up at the grassroots level and for election campaigns. The term the party used for these districts was Gawa, now, this is an old word going back to the days of the Holy Roman Empire. Beginning in 1933, Hitler maintained the system of Gawa. He appointed leaders, or Gauleiter, to each district to represent the party at the local level. These leaders, in turn, appointed subordinates throughout their own districts, down to the level of towns, villages, or even neighborhoods in larger cities. This system had the effect of turning local governments, which did continue to exist, into rubber stamps. It also meant that there were party officials all over the place. Some were reasonably competent, while many others were corrupt party hacks. Many ordinary Germans came to resent their presence and tried to avoid dealing with them as much as possible. The fourth feature was hardly unique to Hitler. 
a divide and rule approach to leadership based on the social Darwinist premise that conflict and struggle were keys to survival and mastery. Reich ministers and the supreme Reich authorities all answered to Hitler directly. So these subordinates competed with each other for resources, for more power, and especially for access to Hitler. And he would often intervene to settle a dispute and, of course, to reassert his own authority. So given the duplication, the administrative bloat, the waste, the corruption, and the difficulties in allocating resources in a rational manner, it is really striking that the regime functioned as well as it did as long as it did, especially in the war's last years. Now Hitler knew next to nothing about how an industrialized economy actually worked. His early thinking about economic policy was influenced strongly by the ideas of a crank anti-Semitic economist. The party program called for nationalizing industries and redistributing land. This was an agenda that dissuaded the bulk of Germany's business elites from supporting the party in the 1920s. But it would be Hitler's obsession with expanding Germany's so-called living space that played the most important role in shaping his economic ideas. He believed that a war of conquest in the East would do more than provide living space and eliminate Germany's deadliest enemies. It would also transform Germany into a global economic superpower capable of challenging the power of the United States in particular. Now, for Hitler, entangling Germany in the world economy, which was at that time dominated by Britain and the U.S., was out of the question. So that left self-sufficiency, also known as autarky, based on the possession of a continental empire. Okay, but in 1933, building an empire lay in the future. What about the pre-war domestic economy? To begin with, the most pressing priority for the new regime in 1933 was the unemployment crisis. Over a third of the workforce was jobless. The economy was actually already beginning to recover since the summer of 1932. And the regime's first work creation programs, notably the construction of a national highway system called the Autobahn, was an important step toward recovery. But projects like these were short-lived and did not, themselves, restore full employment. That objective was reached thanks to rearmament. I'll have more to say about rearmament in a future episode. Now, the priority Hitler placed on massive and rapid rearmament could not be squared with two fundamental related problems. One was the country's need for ever larger quantities of imports and the other was the limited reserves of foreign currencies required to pay for them. This dilemma posed a mounting threat to rearmament and to the regime's popularity as consumers were forced to deal with shortages, rationing, poor quality substitutes, and frozen wages. Well, Hitler's solution was simply to accelerate the timetable for war because he was convinced that 
a war, which he expected Germany to win, would solve all the country's economic problems. In general, for Hitler, all problems, whether they were economic or social or political or military, could be overcome if just enough willpower was applied. This was nonsense, of course. All the world willpower in the world, for instance, could not change the fact that Germany depended heavily on importing raw materials. Now, Hitler's approach to the country's large working class involved a combination of repression, mobilization, and ongoing surveillance. As you know, repression was fast and comprehensive. In just a few months in 1933, the regime dismantled one of the industrialized world's greatest organized labor movements. Independent unions and other forms of organized working class life were disbanded and banned. As in other areas of German life, organized resistance by working class men and women became and remained extremely difficult and dangerous. With labor unions banned, the job of mobilizing workers fell to a new party organization, the German Labor Front. Its German initials were DAF. Established on May 2, 1933, the DAF became one of Germany's largest new bureaucracies, with 25 million members in 1942. Hitler declared its main political purpose to be replacing the old ideal and institutions of working-class solidarity with the social cohesion he believed held the nation together through the First World War. It was no accident that military references and terminology were pervasive in the organization. Melita Mashman provides a few examples of what I mean in Chapter 5 of her memoir. The DAF's leader was Robert Ley. Ley was a veteran who had been badly wounded in the First World War. Though he possessed virtually no relevant professional experience, he was an early Nazi party member and, most important of all, an unwavering Hitler loyalist. Now, eliminating the Social Democrats and the Communist Party and independent labor unions may have pleased business owners and industrialists, but there was also the potential that the DAF and the labor ministry would become excessively interventionist. Though the new regime quickly proved to be business-friendly, mainly because of the priority Hitler placed on suppressing the left, reducing unemployment, and rearmament, the state did become increasingly intrusive and controlling. Making matters worse was the rampant corruption in the huge DAF organization and Hitler's willingness to tolerate the erratic behavior of the alcoholic and brain-damaged Robert Ley. Certainly, mobilizing workers was made easier by the return of full employment in 1935 and 1936. Another important factor was the increase of younger workers who had weaker attachments to the pre-Nazi working class parties and organizations and a greater willingness to accept the new order. And the DAF did make some serious attempts to take care of workers. 
Its best known initiative was the Strength Through Joy organization, Kraft durch Freude in German. This organization provided leisure activities for workers. These included inexpensive vacations, including cruises on two new ships, the Wilhelm Gustloff and the Robert Ley. Hitler also authorized Ley to oversee the production of cheap, reliable people's car, or a Volkswagen, that workers would pay for in advance in small installments. Ferdinand Porsche, yes, that Porsche, designed the prototype. However, the war prevented it from being put into production and no German civilian ever got one before 1945. Now, less well known than the Volkswagen were two other state-subsidized products that actually were manufactured and distributed widely. One was a cheap, reliable shortwave radio. The other was a refrigerator known as the People's Refrigerator. To address a shortage of residential housing all over Germany, the DAF also constructed the first of what were planned to be hundreds of thousands of standalone homes and apartment buildings, though the entire effort had to be shelved during the war in 1932, 1942. Also partly constructed was a massive resort complex called Prora that stretched for 4.5 kilometers along the Baltic seafront on the island of Rügen. Though dismissed by exiled social democrats, at least some of the DAF's programs succeeded in making the ideal of a people's community or a Volksgemeinschaft more than simply propaganda. For many workers, the DAF made the Volksgemeinschaft or the people's community, at least for a few years, an actual lived experience. Well, what about agriculture and farm workers? After all, farm workers comprised about a third of the workforce in 1933. Here, the regime created yet another bureaucracy called the National Food Estate. The National Food Estate set prices for agricultural goods and food products. It became a huge operation with agents in every German village. The food estate did more than control prices. Its leader understood how backward farming was in Germany and was determined to modernize it. So the food estate established a peasant university and two agricultural high schools in the cities of Goslar and the region in lower, of Lower Saxony. The food estate developed an extensive outreach program to farmers in a massive effort to get them to modernize. It became one of the most powerful entities in Nazi Germany. At the local level, the intrusiveness of this agency quickly generated considerable resentment. In Berlin, its leaders attempt to gain control over the production of agricultural machinery, along with proposals to replicate the food estate model for all German industry, encountered fierce resistance from the finance minister and industrial interest groups. 
Well, the proliferation of new agencies competing for products along with a variety of incentives and loopholes for private businesses did actually encourage investment, competition, and innovation. But it is possible to overstate the distinction between the public and private sectors. In reality, the Nazi economy operated as a public-private hybrid or symbiosis in which both sides fed off each other for mutual benefit. It also must be remembered that the regime committed robbery on a massive scale before and during the war, mainly through so-called Aryanization. That means theft of property and assets owned by German and other European Jews, along with outright plunder carried out by ordinary soldiers, greedy businessmen, the SS, and various party satraps. And just as the line between the state and private enterprise was blurry at best, theft became so pervasive and systematized that one historian concluded that it had in fact become business as usual. Well, what about the role of propaganda in creating a popular consensus behind the regime? Gauging the precise impact of propaganda on ordinary Germans is very difficult. The regime controlled the press, so that meant newspapers, radio broadcasts, and newsreel footage shown in cinemas. Germans, of course, were lied to constantly, but no one was ever brainwashed. After the war, many non-Jewish Germans recalled the years before the Second World War as the good years. This sentiment certainly comes through clearly in Melita Mashman's memoir. And of course, the war and the occupation that followed colored people's perceptions of the pre-war years. But for many non-Jewish Germans, those years were good. For idealists like Melita, there was the chance, the opportunity, to contribute to the building of a new, unified national community. You'll recall that the Nazi Party's program demanded the provision of state welfare for all true Germans. In Germany, the tradition of state-sponsored welfare provisions dated back to the imperial period. It was Chancellor Otto von Bismarck who pioneered the world's first comprehensive system of state welfare. Shared sacrifice and losses experienced during the First World War had also revealed to millions of Germans the unifying possibilities of mutual support across class lines. The constitution of the Weimar Republic, moreover, included guarantees of generous welfare benefits. Indeed, it was the failure of the state to meet these obligations in the early 1930s that precipitated the political deadlock that resulted in Hitler's appointment as chancellor. Now, the party's program was hardly original in listing several demands for the provision of various kinds of state-sponsored aid or welfare. But remember, these were to be restricted to members of the so-called German racial community. 
The matter became even more pressing as the Great Depression hit the country and the Nazi party became the single largest in the Reichstag. Therefore, the party created the National Socialist Welfare Organization. Its German initials were NSV. It was created as a Berlin-based party-affiliated organization in April 1932. Two months later, Hitler ordered that every one of the party's regions sponsor an NSV branch. When Hitler became chancellor, the NSV took over nearly all independent welfare associations. The exceptions were those affiliated with the Christian churches or those sponsored by the Red Cross. Another important example was the popular Winter Help Works, which fell under the authority of the propaganda ministry. The Winter Help Works was more than an empty propaganda tool. It attracted thousands of volunteers. Even the head of the SS, Heinrich Himmler, ordered policemen and members of the SS and the Gestapo to contribute. The Winter Help Works collected over a billion Reichsmarks and operated for the entire period of Nazi rule. Now, the NSV's leader proclaimed that his organization existed only to help so-called healthy Germans make it through a tough period of crisis, after which they would be expected to return to work. But by 1939, the NSV had over 14 million members, and it became one of the largest party-sponsored organizations. And its aid and outreach activities were hardly small-scale. Its workers and volunteers fed thousands of unemployed and destitute Germans. It hired tens of thousands of nurses, midwives, family counselors, and kindergarten teachers. The NSV sponsored rural outings and even trips abroad for hundreds of thousands of children. There is a considerable amount of evidence from supporters and opponents of the regime alike that the work of both the NSV and the Winter Help work was highly effective in generating a sense of cross-class solidarity and mutual care, especially among young and idealistic Germans. However, the seriousness and meaningfulness of these programs for the social consensus behind the regime were undercut by the fact that they became two of the largest cesspools of corruption. For most non-Jewish Germans, what really mattered was that the regime had restored political stability and full employment and seemed to be returning Germany to greatness. The country's elites and millions of ordinary Germans went along, and in many cases they went along enthusiastically, like Melita Mashman. But Melita's memoir also shows you how it was possible to ignore or justify the crimes committed in the process, the disenfranchisement of fellow German citizens, persecution, harassment, concentration camps, state-sanctioned theft, and murder. That's it for part one of this episode. We'll pick up the story in part two.
As always, thanks for listening, be well, and take care of each other.